month with a great mission dinner, a chili, a chili dinner. Part of that is praying about the year's commitment financially we are going to make to our 39 missionaries to help keep them on the field sharing the name of Christ in different parts of the world. So be praying about what God would have you do this year for a 12-month commitment to help continue to, us to continue partnering, getting this gospel out. You've heard about Awana right here at home base. Uh, our very deeply held goal is to create ministry here in cooperation with parents that is going to form our children into lifelong, vitally committed, passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we believe God is going to help us do that. We believe that what happens on Sunday morning with our kids and now what is going to be starting this week, it's an exciting week here, in the Awana program for our kids, God is going to help these, these be avenues for accomplishing those goals. Thank you to the many, many adults and even youth that have stepped up to help be, form the team that's going to be working with our kids this Wednesday and many Wednesdays to come. So God bless you guys for that. Uh, and so there's, there's so much going on, uh, opportunities to serve Christ. And uh, thank you for the many people in this church that are involved. And if you aren't, hey, great opportunity for you to get involved. God bless you guys for that. Well, uh, before I get into the scripture today, just a couple things. Number one, I want to take a poll. I want to make sure that uh, we still have a, a high level of unity here in the church, uh, even though this is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, so how many are Bronco fans here today? Peyton, okay, Peyton fans. How many are Seattle Seahawks fans? All right. Okay, now, I just want you guys to be nice to each other, regardless of the outcome. And then those of you that are rooting for the Broncos, I, I, I'll be praying for you that you can handle the disappointment. All right? <laughs> I have some connection in Seattle, so I'm, I'm going that direction today. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to share is, you know, last week after my message, I took a moment to uh, share with you that I just wasn't feeling very well. And that's true. I wasn't feeling very well last week. Uh, and I felt that it, it so impacted my presentation that it was so disjointed in my mind that I felt if I don't explain this to people, they're going to wonder what is going on with this guy up here. Uh, however... Uh, after giving my explanation, I've heard from several of you during the week that you didn't notice that. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm either always disjointed <laughs> and out of you know connection or something, or uh, I, you just reaffirm my belief in miracles. You know, so somehow that message made it through, and then I do give God the glory and the thanks for that. Um, we're in a series, the second week, in fact, called 360 Degree Faith." In this series, what we're really doing is we're taking a look at the worldview of Jesus Christ, how Jesus saw all of life, the whole sweeping span of life. And this is important because as his followers, what that means is we are learning to and growing in embracing his worldview. So that we don't just have this narrow little faith that's confined to the walls of the church on Sunday. It's not just that little, quote, spiritual part of our life. But the worldview of Jesus covers all dimensions of life. 
And so we're spending these eight weeks looking at a, a variety of those different dimensions of life through Jesus' eyes. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at Jesus and his view of evil. And I'm really broadening that topic a little bit. We're going to take a look at Jesus' view of right and wrong. Right and wrong. Now, to get us started, a uh, question. We have a very, very difficult time in our society right now defining what is right and what is wrong. Wouldn't you agree? There's all kinds of culture wars right now and debates about morality and what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. Uh, opinions all over the place. Take a look at this video. I think that helps put in perspective the, the issue we're facing, th this difficulty. Take a look. What is right and what is wrong? Okay, how do I determine right from wrong? Well, depends how you look at it. Oh, how can we explain it? Weigh the pros and the cons, I suppose. How do I do it? I just, you know it. Some people, what's right to them isn't right to other people. I purely believe that it's the way you're brought up. I think partly it's what my parents told me were right or wrong. I determine right from wrong. Well, based on if I would do it with my mom in the room. I think that's a very big part of it. If my mom was in the room, I, I would not do the wrong things. Or I would do them very quickly. I think we have an internal clock that tells us right from wrong. Man will either be governed by force or by the wills of his own heart. Cheating on your wife with adultery, yeah, not a good idea. If you do bad things, you're, just not, you're not gonna be liked. I always judge by my religion first, and then I see if it's right or wrong. As a Unitarian Universalist, since we're a non-credal religious tradition, we don't have a set doctrine to which to turn to look for a specific answer. Murdering people in cold blood is not a good idea for a civil society. Not stealing is a good idea. Coveting or envy, it's good mental health, but certainly there are, there are valuable things to be derived from the Ten Commandments. We might turn to some scripture from the Hebrew Bible or from the New Testament, Buddhist sutras. We might turn to the Quran. We might turn to Tao Te Ching from Taoism. Um, all of these things might be sources of authority. I don't think that you can say that something's definitely right and something's definitely wrong. There can't be two contradicting laws of the universe. If you do something you feel guilty about it, I suppose. That would mean that, that for you it was something wrong. Not everybody has the same set of rules they play by. The way I live, I don't care if other people don't agree with me. It's my opinion, and, and that's the way I live, and if I ain't hurting you, screw it, that's the way I'm gonna be. There has to be some law, otherwise there's anarchy. All right, last week, um, we made this, uh, we gave the definition of what a worldview is, and I think that really goes to the heart of why we're having such a difficult time in our society right now defining what is right and wrong. Uh, what is a worldview? A worldview is a way of interpreting reality. It's a way of processing and putting, a mean, putting uh, an interpretation to meaning, morality, values, purpose and all of us have a all of us live with a worldview we process everything through our worldview and a society does the same thing now there is a dominant 
worldview behind the modern way we have of explaining right and wrong. And this worldview has two parts to it. And the first one, I want to use this box to illustrate. I used this box last week as well. But I think it illustrates, again, this worldview and how it impacts our definition of morality. Let this box, like it did last week, represent the universe. Now, a very dominant worldview right now says that there, this is all that exists, this, the universe. And we and all the bits and pieces of existence, all the chemicals and all the creatures on earth, including your life and mine, we live inside this universe, inside the box. There is no God outside the box. That means that there is no ultimate meaning. There is no ultimate purpose that anyone or anything inside the box really has. Anything we're going to create that has meaning and purpose, we're going to have to create it ourselves because there's no God above us who can set any kind of objective uh, meaning or, in our case today, there's no God above us who gives us any clear definition that's binding upon all people in all history, in all places, in all times, how to define right and wrong. So this dominant worldview is telling us that when it comes to coming up with right and wrong, we're left on our own. We're going to have to do that ourselves. Now, um, I think a, a good way to put it would be this, that every new generation is in charge of defining, redefining, adapting, modifying, changing its idea of right and wrong to fit the evolving trends and the agendas of that particular time. So, in other words, right and wrong are sort of fluid. Right and wrong are not fixed and constant. Right and wrong evolve. And it's up to us to, to establish that every generation. Now, in this kind of a world, in this kind of a society, Obviously, there are going to become some very, very sharp and hostile clashes between the various groups who see right and wrong differently. And in those societies, which, whichever opinion, whichever moral opinion wins, will ultimately either be decided by the majority opinion, who happens to subscribe to one particular set of ideas about right and wrong, or by the group that gains the most political power in that culture, who then can impose its brand of right and wrong upon everybody else. There's only two ways this can go, ultimately. And that makes this a very, very dangerous condition for a society. Because the further apart the views of right and wrong become, it will ultimately lead to, well, I think what will unfold in about three or four stages. The first stage is to a silencing of other moral views by the dominant moral view, to marginalizing, pushing off to the edges, and then labeling with labels like bigoted, prejudiced, intolerant, and pushing all those who do not subscribe to this new morality, pushing them off to the sides and silencing them. The second stage is the dominant view will begin to push its 
understandings of morality and right and wrong through the legislatures, through the courts of that society, so they can put their definitions into law. And then the third stage, ultimately beyond that, and this is where it really gets sort of dangerous, is criminalizing and even jailing those who will not embrace the prevailing opinion of right and wrong. Now, can that kind of thing happen in modern civilized societies? Well, it did 60 or 70 years ago. We only have to look back so far as the Holocaust. Very civilized 20th century nation bought into the idea wholesale, a whole population bought into the idea that it was a moral thing to eliminate an entire race of people from the face of the earth for the well-being of the greater majority. That can happen in our world. Now, in our nation right now, we are in the, the middle of a radical redefining of right and wrong. And so I would want to ask this morning, which of these three stages are we in? Uh, and I, would, I will give you my opinion on that. I think we're very, very well into the first stage, and we're just starting to move into the second stage. The first stage of sharp verbal disagreement and debate over, what's going, uh, over what is right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. But now we, we've also come to that point where uh, agendas are being pushed into legislation, into ju judicial uh, pronouncements, and becoming the law of the land. And those that do not agree, we hear labels all the time, intolerant, bigoted, prejudices, prejudiced. Uh, that, that's very much a part of our everyday life here. Now, we who are Christians, who base our worldview of right and wrong upon Jesus Christ, upon God who is outside the box, upon the God who has given us a written word in which he gives clear definition of moral boundaries, of what is right and what is wrong. We Christians, Christ followers, who believe that Jesus Christ came into, from outside the box into the box to reinforce for us and reaffirm for us the truth of what this book is all about and how it defines morality. We need to be really, 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 really concerned about this time and age in which we live because really the, the, the most fierce assault on the revisions of new morality are really coming up against followers of Jesus Christ. So, so, so the first part of this, of this world, this dominant worldview, is that morality is a relative thing. There is no objective God, no absolute God who's setting up, setting up the moral plan, the moral rules. But the second part of this worldview is, is sort of a logical outcome from the first part. Because whenever you eliminate God, you not only redefine morality, you go even a step further than that, and you have to redefine human nature. The two go hand in hand. Now, we can see this redefinition going back two or three hundred years. A philosopher in Geneva in the 1700s, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he made, a, he made a statement. I think the quote will be on the screen. But this is what he said. 
If man is good by nature, as I believe to have shown him to be, it follows that he stays like that as long as nothing foreign to him, nothing from the outside corrupts him. And then Carl Rogers, 150 years, 200 years later, uh, one of the great uh, psych psychologists of the 20th century and a great thinker. But here's what Carl Rogers said. He said, for myself, though I am very well aware of the incredible amount of destructive, cruel, malevolent behavior in today's world, from the threats of war to the senseless violence in the streets, I do not find that this evil is inherent in human nature. And then Abraham Maslow, another great psychologist from the 20th century, he just put it out there like this. He said, sick people are made by a sick culture. Healthy people are made possible by a healthy culture. Now, these thinkers were very, very correct in one thing they were saying. And that is, we all agree with them on this. In fact, we owe these guys a debt of gratitude about opening this up more than had ever been opened up before. And that is, the huge influence of the environment upon the way people are for good or for bad. And we cannot deny that. These, these men believed that evil, a good, a good part of the evil that comes out of people's lives is the result of bad and negative stuff that has happened to them from the outside, from their environment. Things like abuse, neglect, bad homes, betrayals, and, and we say amen to that. We know that to be true. Uh, but while they were teaching this, they also taught something else. They believed that the basic desires of human nature are noble. In other words, they believed if you get way down to the to the core, the human self, the human nature, the human heart, it is basically good. Or if not good, it's neutral. They believe that we are born good or neutral, and if we can just give a person a safe and healthy home and a, and a good, healthy environment, that the good desires of their human nature will then be freed to begin to express themselves. If we can get rid of the evil in society then this gives freedom of expression to the goodness that's inside human heart and nature to express itself, and therefore we will come into this utopia. We will come into this kind of world that rightly distinguishes right and wrong if we can just do that. So their view was, we've got to massively set in, places, set in place the healing of people from the negative effects of the environment so that their good and natural desires can be freed of all that and can begin to express themselves and flow out. And then it was, what they're really saying is this. If we can deal with the negative stuff that comes in from the environment and heal people from those wounds, then we can put them in touch with their true self that's at the core of their nature. And that's going to be the solution to right and wrong and, and having a good world. Now, we need to stop and think about that for just a second. They were half right. They were spot on, like we said, about the corrupting and the damaging influence on a person's life from the outside, things that happen to them. 
But they were very, very, very wrong about their understanding of human nature. So we have to ask this question, what if human nature is not basically good? What if there comes packaged up in our nature, even from birth? We come into this world with some desires and tendencies and inclinations that are not healthy and good. That are, that, say it's a mixed bag in our nature when we're born. There's, there's some good stuff and there's some messed up stuff. And we just come into the world that way. If that's true about human nature, then making human nature the basis for our hopes for establishing a society of right and wrong will be an utter disaster that instead of leading us to recover our true selves will lead us in the exact opposite direction, down a dead-end street of illusion and more self-destruction and more self-misery. But this is the world, this is the dominant worldview in our relativistic society today, that there is a capability within human beings themselves to devise and design right and wrong. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we embrace the worldview of Jesus because we believe he alone is our God and our maker who came from outside the box. He came into the box. If he is God, if he is our maker, he came inside that box to do what? Well, one of the things he came to do was to help us accurately define who we are. He is the one who can really put us in touch with who we are and what is really going to fulfill us and then create a community and a society and a world that really does live in peace and right and wrong and good and health and all those kinds of things that every human being desires. Now, Jesus spoke very clearly about right and wrong and its connection to human nature. Uh, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. So let's take a look at what Jesus says about this. Now, we can just scroll through the first 10 verses on the screen here of, this, of Matthew chapter 15. I don't have time to read all those verses, but I will tell you the context. The context is, is this. Jesus, the day before, had fed the 5,000 out in the wilderness. He had taught them all day. They were famished. He was concerned, so a little boy had a lunch. Jesus multiplied it and fed 5,000-plus people with it out in the middle of the wilderness. The next day, uh, the religious leaders, a group of religious leaders come to him. They were called the Pharisees. And they said to him, and oh, by the way, there were 12 baskets left over. Remember that? And I would imagine the disciples went out, they, they gathered up those 12 baskets, and I would imagine they, they had a lot of snacks on leftovers. Don't you all like leftovers? <laughs> okay. uh, they were snacking on leftovers, okay, out as they walked in from the wilderness. Okay, the religious leaders come up and say, okay, Jesus, why do you and your disciples break the traditions? Why, do you, why don't your disciples, why don't you, why aren't you washing your hands before you eat? Now, Jesus was totally fine with washing hands, and we should be too, right? Uh, I hope we are. Uh, uh, but Jesus had common sense too. Uh, now, you see, the, 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 what, the, what the religious leaders, they had devised a whole bunch of rules, man-made rules. And one of those involved this elaborate ritual 
of hand washing. And it wasn't just sticking your hands in it, you know, it wasn't that. I mean, hand washing, you had to hold your hands a certain way, let the water run down, come to your wrists. Then you had to rub your hands a certain number of times. And I mean, it was a, quite a ritual. So they were saying, this, this was their view of what God expected. This was their view of what was right and what was wrong. If a person didn't obey that, you're in trouble. Well, they cared more about that than the miracle Jesus had performed in feeding 5,000 hungry people. That's where they were. They were blind in their own version of what is right and wrong. And so Jesus says to them in verse number 9, basically he says, your man-made rules have replaced the word of God about what is right and what is wrong. And then Jesus uses the whole hand-washing incident to give this profound teaching about right and wrong, about the origin of evil in our world and what we must do to recover the right and the good. So in verses 10 to 13 is where we really want to take a more specific look. In verse number 10, Jesus says this, Then Jesus called to the crowds and he said, Listen to what I say and try to understand this. You are not defiled by what you eat, what you take into yourself. You are defiled by what, by what comes out of you. You're defiled by what you say and what you do. And then, after he said that to the uh, religious leaders, then the disciples came to Jesus and asked, do you realize that you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Uh, yeah, you see, there's that clash of worldviews. Even in Jesus' day, there was a clash of worldviews between what is right, what is wrong. And it was sharp. In fact, that clash finally put him on a cross. Um, but then Jesus replies in verse 13. He uses an analogy. He says, every plant not planted by my heavenly Father, that's God who's outside the box, will be rooted up. In other words, he's saying that this whole idea of right and wrong, these man-made rules that the Pharisees have come up with, God, the God who's outside the box, he did not plant those. He is not the origin of those. Those are man-made. And, he, and he, Jesus says they're, they're sort of like weeds because one of these days they're going to be pulled right up by the roots. They won't last. And then he goes on in verse number uh, and then he says in verse 14, continuing to comment on the religious leaders, he just sort of says, ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Now, Peter asks a question in verse 15. He just basically says, Lord, could you explain this in plain English, plain English a little bit better. Uh, and this is what Jesus says. And he's sort of stern with Peter, but he, you know, he says, don't you understand? Uh, the NIV says, why are you so dull? <laughs> uh, and I think what Jesus is saying here, he's referring to the blindness that all of us have in our human nature. Some of, you know, spiritual dullness is sort of a mark of human nature because we're separated from God. So we're all a little bit spiritually dull, and Peter was. And so, 
So Jesus needed to explain this whole issue about what is the true story about human nature. And again, he goes back to the, the whole eating, the eating incident here. Verse 17, he says, anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. Now that's putting it out there pretty straight, okay? <laughs> Verse 18, but the words that you speak come from the heart. Synonymous with your nature. Synonymous with yourself. That's where your words come from. And then he says, that, that is what defiles you. That's the source of evil that really trips us up in our lives. And so Jesus is saying that human nature is not basically good. Now, we have to understand something here. When we say human nature isn't basically good, that has nothing to do, let's put it this way, human beings are pricelessly valuable, okay? Uh, we're, we, we've had a ruination, we've had a destruction, we've had something that's just hit us to the core that's, that's tainted us and messed us up. But we haven't lost one ounce of our value to the God who's outside the box, and we never will. He loves us, even though we're, we've been defaced down to our nature, scratched and torn and, and all that. But, and Jesus is telling us, he's being honest about the way we really are because he loves us so much. Our, our, we are separated from God. And this goes all the way back to the story of our very first parents who, while given access to all of the trees, all of the resources in the Garden of Eden, they were told by God not to eat of the one tree that was at the center of the garden. In other words, at the center of creation. And the name of that tree, interestingly enough, is the tree of the knowledge, or we could say definition. The tree of the definition of good and evil, right and wrong. And this tree was strategically placed right at the center of creation, right at the center of that garden. And God, and, and the reason for that is it represents God who is at the center of all creation. He's the author of it all. And God, it also represents the fact that God is the only one qualified to define for human beings in all places, in all societies, at all times, at all times, he's the only one qualified to define what is right and what is wrong, good and evil. But our parents disobeyed God. He gave them the ability to do that. He gave them a gift, a great gift, freedom to choose. And they asserted themselves and they took from that tree. What they were really doing was they were putting themselves at the center of the world. They were usurping God's place. And they were taking over the definition of right and wrong. Taking that out of God's hands. And they really replaced God's worldview with their own human worldview. And this is the root 
of all of the moral upheaval and moral confusion that has reigned on the history of this planet and is blossoming in our culture right now. Now, Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow rightly judged the deep influence of the forces outside a person's life on their psychology, on their emotions. But they wrongly judged the even deeper and larger influence of the fallen self, the human will that has been separated and turned away from God and filled with a mixed bag of confused desires and definitions and inclinations and tendencies about what is good and bad, right and wrong. Our fallen will, since expulsion from the Garden of Eden, has been sending human beings in every generation false signals about what is right and what is wrong. And yet we try to build our moralities on our definitions. Now Jesus clearly says in verse number 19, he makes his point in verse number 19. He says this, it's for from the heart, from the nature, from our fallen self, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander, these are what defile you, the things that are coming from within. The Apostle Paul echoes Jesus in these quotes from some scripture that Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 say it this way. Paul says, so I say, live by the Spirit, be guided by the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of what? Of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. Romans, Paul says this, For if you live according to the sinful nature and all of its definitions and desires, you will die. But if you live by the Holy Spirit, you will put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And then one other place. Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves, and here's another list, of all such things as these, things that come from inside, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off, listen to this, you've taken off your old self, that old nature. And through the power of Christ, you have put on a new self, which is being renewed from what it used to be in the knowledge, in the image of the Creator. Man, that's a powerful passage of Scripture, and what a wonderful promise of, of change that is for you and I. Now, there's a psychiatrist by the name of, uh, in Britain, by the name of Theodore Dalrymple. I want you to listen to a minute and 50 seconds of what he has to say, because it, it sort of gives us a modern expression that really coincides very much with what Jesus is saying. Take a listen to this. 
Rousseau's idea was that all the imperfections of man were attributable to social causes, and that man was naturally good, and if you got rid of all the artificialities that there were in society, uh, and man returned to a natural state, uh, he would be uh, very good. And of course it's a very convenient idea because it means all you have to do to be good is to be your true self. And since your true self is really doing exactly what you like, then doing what you like, exactly what you like, becomes virtue. One patient said to me, I had to kill a doctor or, or I don't know what I would have done. And what he actually means by that is that unless he expresses himself, unless he lets out his emotion, in this case by killing his wife, uh, something really terrible would happen to him. So the mere death of his wife uh, was not very important by comparison with what might have happened to him had he not killed his wife. And actually, uh, as I tell many of my patients, you don't need to find yourself, you need to lose yourself. You need to have something which transcends yourself in order to make your life meaningful. And that's impossible if you're constantly referring to yourself as the be-all and uh, end-all of your existence. And I think actually Francis Bacon said it in an essay, he said, it is a poor center of a man's life himself. And I like his phrase, we need something that transcends ourselves to really understand right and wrong. And, and, trans, and, and the only one who transcends the box is God, is, is Jesus Christ. Now, um, so we'll bring this down to a, a closing, some closing points here this morning. First, the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to heal us. He wants to heal our whole society on two levels. He's very, very concerned about the damage at the emotional level from all the wounds that come into our lives from the outside, most often from the hands of other people. He's really concerned about that. And I know that every person in this room has received lacerations just from living in a world like this. This is a tough world. We get hurt in this world, sometimes beyond what we could imagine. Jesus, is he came into the world because he cares for our sorrows. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. He cares about what's happened to us. That's one level. But the Lord has an even deeper level of healing that he wants to do in our lives. And that is, he wants to go down deep underneath all those damaged emotions. He wants to go down to the, real, to the very core of our being, our nature, our self. Because there's a problem in our self down there. It's separated from God and therefore it's misdirected. And it will, mis and it will misdirect us. That's why Jesus came into the world, uh, to heal us at both levels. How does he heal, how does he heal that, that fallen nature that we have? How, how does that healing take place deep inside? Peter says in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he says, God has given us some great promises that by his power we can be set free from the corruption that is, that 
is in our sinful desires uh, by this remarkable way. He will, he will let us participate in his own nature. Jesus Christ came into the world so that if we will receive him by faith into our lives, he will begin to share his nature, his self, with us. Replacing, so we have new rooting system then. We're no longer rooted in that old, fallen, messed up self. We're now transplanted and rooted in the character and self of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest miracle that any person could ever possibly entertain. But that's what happens. That's what it is to, to pass from life, from death into life. Jesus does that in our hearts, in our lives, when we invite him to come in. He transforms us. So when we, so what the, the invitation from God is, we must come to God surrendering to him not only our emotional damage, but we must also come surrendering even more our will. Only then are we set free to discover in Christ our real self, our true self. Because Jesus is the one who then re begins to rehabilitate us according to his worldview. His worldview is grounded in reality because he is reality. And there is no other worldview that is grounded in reality except the reality, except the worldview of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. There is no way to know the God who's outside the box except by coming through me. He didn't leave right and wrong up to whatever our opinions might happen to be in whatever century we might happen to be. I know, now, this, will this has the potential to be offensive in our day just like it was offensive in the day when Jesus lived because it goes against the grain of our culture. But if we really love people, and if we really care about our culture today, we are going to stand solid in truth about right and wrong as it's set forth in Christ. To cave in to the new definitions of the culture is to give up on the only message that provides hope for this culture, can save it and restore it. So we must hold the worldview of Christ with his love, but with his tenacity in our hearts. And where do we find the worldview of Jesus Christ? Two places. First, we find it right here in the written word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Jesus made that statement. He said, I didn't come to destroy the prophets. I didn't come to destroy the word of God to replace it. I came to fulfill it, to reinforce it. And then he says, not one word of this book will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word of this book is ever going to pass away. Uh, there's, our, there's our foundation for what is right and what is wrong. And the second way Jesus expressed his worldview is he expressed it on the cross. In other words, his worldview is not just some theoretical idea, but he expressed it with such desire to save us that he himself, God, came into our world. And he took upon himself the blame for that one foundational sin that rebellion we have at the core of our nature against God. Jesus took the blame for that so that we could be set free from it. And whether, and whether psychiatrist Dalrymple knows it or not, he stated exactly 
what he, rest- he restated exactly what Jesus said 2,000 years ago about our deepest need. Remember in Luke chapter 9, verses 24 to 25, this is what Jesus said. He says, if you try to hang on to your life as it currently is, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life as it currently is, if you give it up for my sake, then you will find your life. And that's it. what he's talking about is this. Don't hang on to that old fallen nature. Let go of that. Come to me. Allow me to share my nature with you. And that's where you're going to be put in touch with your real self. And that's where you're going to learn what is right and what is wrong. And it's going to bring order and peace and security and stability to your life and potentially as we share it to an entire society. But that's the way according to the worldview of Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior from outside the box. And if you're here this morning and you've been listening to this and maybe you're still sorting out what is right and what is wrong, trying to find your footing morally in life, truth, I want to encourage you to consider Jesus Christ. He speaks to these issues with great wisdom and power. And more than that, he invites you into a relationship with himself in which you can experience his presence. Encourage you to receive Christ. And all you have to do, you can do it where you sit today, is say, Lord, I believe you are who you said you are. I invite you to come into my life. I believe that you're, you're my Savior. Christ will come into your life. And those of us who are following Christ, uh, this is a day to immerse ourselves in truth. This is a day to have the worldview of Jesus very firmly fixed in our lives so that we don't have Jesus in our hearts but we don't have him up here in our minds. We have to have hearts that love Jesus and minds that think like Jesus so that we're not swept away by the new definitions of our culture but we can hold fast to the definitions that Jesus Christ gives us. So I want to encourage you this morning, maybe you're a new Christian, get a new life translation, study Bible, NLT. Get a study Bible that's got footnotes in the bottom of it. Start in the New Testament. Begin to immerse your life in this book. It's very, very important. God will reveal himself to you. Uh, I know it can be an intimidating book to understand, but get into it. Get a Bible with study notes. Get into a small group. Begin to grow. Take hold. It's really, really important that we be immersed in truth if we're going to stand in this day and time and stand with grace and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to stand firmly. Lord, it's a very crucial day we live in. And Lord, you care about every human being. You care about all of us, Lord. And it's only by your grace that we have come to know Christ who who is the author of right and wrong. It's only by grace. Lord, let that grace be extended to our whole culture where there's such great confusion so that your peace can come into their lives as well. Father, we pray today that um, you will bless in these closing moments of this service. Reveal your presence to us. And we give you praise for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.